Hello everybody, welcome to Health Hackers episode 29. I'm Gemma Evans, journalist and presenter here in the UK. This is my series devoted to meeting and interviewing pioneering people in health and wellness. Today, I'm with this pioneer, Dr. Giles Yo. He's an obesity geneticist, a broadcaster and an author. Today, we are going to tackle two major themes. Firstly, for the first half of this show, we're going to talk about how genetics can influence our behavior around food, the way we eat and what we eat. And then the second half of this show, we're gonna talk all about supplements. I know some of you sent me questions about supplements, whether we should take them, whether we need them. Giles is gonna answer some of your questions because Giles did a TV investigation looking at the industry. So we'll come onto that a bit later on. So to begin with, uh, mm-hmm. well, I should say thank you for meeting me here That's at the, right. the Royal Institution, the also known as the home of science, where uh, you've become a bit of a regular, haven't you? Twice. Twice. If that makes a regular, then there's, an, there's another thing entirely. But you do talks here, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. What are your talks about? The first one was, was about the, actually my day job, which is genetics of obesity. And the second one was, was about my book. So I, I launched, I launched the, my, my, book, my book here. So that's of the second Of course, one. we're going to talk a bit about Giles' book, Gene Eating. But just as you mentioned there, uh-huh. being an obesity geneticist. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean you do? Oh, well, I mean, I, I guess if you start with what does it mean the geneticists do? I mean, geneticists try and understand what role your genes have to do with whatever trait or disease you might be interested in. Um, and actually, when you're, ask, when you're speaking to a geneticist, we don't only work on DNA because we also work on how your DNA responds and reacts to the surrounding environment. Okay? And so what I actually do is because I'm interested in, in obesity, I'm interested in why in this current environment that we live in, what we call the obesogenic environment, okay? Are some people obese, some people overweight, some people average, and some people skinny as all, uh, uh, anything. Why do we differ in body size in this environment? That's what, that's what I study. And this was really what your book was about, right? Well, you wanted to address some of this. I wanted to address some of it. I think that's the first, that certainly is the first part of the book mm. in, in, in talking, and I think a big, Whenever I say I'm, I'm a geneticist that studies obesity, I immediately become the bad person. And I become the bad person because I'm perceived as giving um, fat people, obese people, overweight people, none of the terms which I use in a pejorative fashion, okay, um, an excuse. And so, which is always an interesting thing because what happens if you're studying the genetics of heart disease or arthritis? Do you give that person an, uh, an excuse suddenly? You don't. Um, and I'm perceived as giving people an excuse because obesity seems to be an easy problem. Eat less and move more. Mm-hmm. That is true from a physics point of view. I mean, clearly you have to eat less and move more in order to, in order to either gain weight or lose weight. But um, I think the question which has begun to really interest me and many people in the field is why do people behave differently around food? Why, why do some people um, feel more attracted to food? Why do some people, like my wife, love chocolate? Whereas other people, like me, like Pork scratchings, okay? And me. Like like you. And and I guess built in there is some people like sweet food, some people like fatty food. Why do some people respond to stress by eating and other people respond to stress by not eating, right? We know people both like that. It's the same hormone. Why do we respond in diametric opposite fashions to it? A lot of it's going to be down to your genes and that's what I'm interested in doing. And if you are more driven towards food or feel more hungry or respond to stress by eating, over a time, it's more difficult to say no, you'll gain weight and you become obese. So obesity, while it might seem a simple problem because we appear to have a choice, 
if it's more difficult for us to say no because of our genes, then it is not really a choice. So, so do our genes make it more difficult for us to say no? Yes. Yeah. yes. So, so what kind of proportion of people are always walking around feeling hungrier? Ah, okay, so then, then it becomes a spectrum because clearly we don't live in a situation where there are fat people and non-fat people. We have a normal distribution, we have everyone and all shades of grey in between. And so these genes, what we found out, we now know of over 200 genes that influence our behaviour around food and probably more. It's not like everyone has 200, everyone has zero. We all have a different mix of these genes. And depending on the number of these genes we have, it depends whether or not we become fat, we become skinny, or we're an average. So really, the answer is, depending on how many you have, it actually modulates your ability to say no to food, pretty much. So if you are walking around with a genetic component that makes you hungrier, uh -huh. or makes it harder for you to say no, uh-huh. What do you do? Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's the, that's the $64 million question. I think while there's two answers to this, we cannot fix the problem of obesity, which we know is a problem, without fixing the environment. Okay? And I think we can all agree that if we look at the food environment around us, and yes, it's true. I mean, we, we, what we have done is improved our ability to make food cheaper okay, and be able to transport it longer and be able to keep it from spoiling uh, 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 you know, for far longer. All this is great to keep us all alive. But I think somewhere in between, we've managed to break our food environment in a, in a sense where um, not only are we eating more, yet getting less nutrients, okay? Uh, you know, we're also now on top of that, then adding a toxic discussion around, around food. And I think that's a bad thing. That's, that's just not, not what we should. We should be loving our food. We should just be eating less of the food that we love, I think is the answer. There's a bit in the book uh -huh. that I wrote down here uh -huh. where you say, I would argue that to be overweight in our current environment is indeed the natural, highly evolved even response. Is that because all around us we have so much temptation from junk food or, or is it not that simple? Are there other factors that have happened in the last 30 years that have seen all of us increase our body mass index. Okay, I mean, I think there is, there is a nuanced argument. This is great because we're having a conversation and you're not looking for a 10 second soundbite. I, uh, undoubtedly, we have evolved to a time in which we have never had enough food. But you would argue that probably only, what, 30, 40 years ago, that we've had too much food. It means that we could eat whatever we want all the time, okay? So, so aside from the very rich people, normal people. So you, you, you would say that in a situation where we have never had enough food, Okay, that clearly the people who are able to eat more or store more had an evolutionary advantage, okay, mm -hmm. because it kept us alive, preparing ourselves for the famine. Clearly today, we are all preparing ourselves for the famine, which is never, never going to come. So genes that were protective of us in the feast-famine environment have suddenly become toxic in the feast-feast environment that we actually, that we actually live in. Mm. Now, that being said, not everyone has become obese, and that's, and, that, and that's the point. And that's because we don't have a universal response to too much food. We have a universal response to too little food. We die. Okay? So therefore, if we have too little food and we die, we better make sure we get enough food to stay alive. Universal response. Whereas too much food has never been a real problem till now, so we don't have a universal response. So as a result, some people don't gain a lot of weight, other people gain a hell of a lot of weight. There's a bit in the book where you talk about um, 
our brains don't like losing weight. They don't. They hate it. It doesn't. So why, so tell us about that, but then also tell us why, why slim people exist then? Because why aren't their brains driving them to eat like a horse every day? Ah, okay, so it, because our brains, last time I checked, are not transplantable, okay? Your brains hate it when you lose weight in your body or in, my, or in my body. So to control food intake, or to influence your behavior around food anyway, your brain needs to know two pieces of information. It needs to know how much fat you have, and that's important because how much fat you have is how long you will last without food in the wild. It also needs to know how, what you've just eaten and what you have, uh, are currently eating. Okay, so that's the short term and long term. Your brain then senses these and then, and then influences your next, influ uh, your next interaction with food. However, what happens is for some people, your brain is slightly less sensitive to these signals. So imagine if you've eaten, imagine if you have 20 kilos of fat on you, mm. but your brain doesn't sense 20 kilos, it only senses 18 kilos. So what then happens is your brain then drives you to eat more, to gain, to, to, to gain weight, to make it up to 20 kilos, even if you've already had that amount of fat in you. Equally, you can imagine if your brain, if you've eaten a thousand calories, but your brain thinks you only ate 800 calories because it's slightly less sensitive, it'll drive you to eat more, all right? So, so, that, so that, that's yeah. the genetics element to it. But if you suddenly do eat less, your brain says, I was expecting X calories of food. Where, 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 where is the food? You're now less likely to survive, okay? So it will make you, so if you lose weight, for example, even a couple of kilos, even a few pounds, if you lose weight, for example, your brain will suddenly decide, Oh no, you know, you're losing weight, you must not have enough food, this is a terrible thing, you better eat, 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 eat now in order, to, in order to... So your brain hates it, even just a little bit of weight. Which is why, when you actually are trying to lose weight, some people need to lose weight because they're carrying too much fat, and that's fine. But when you try and lose weight, the first few pounds come off and you say, Oh yeah, oh yeah, this is easy, yeah, this is fantastic. Then, three weeks down the line, you've lost five pounds, the sixth pound is the most difficult to lose. Different people, different, but you know, we understand this. And that's because that is when your brain is deciding, dude, you're losing weight, this is just not a good thing. And it's slowing, a, it's slowing down your energy expenditure, your metabolism ever so slightly. It's also making you feel slightly hungrier, which is why you feel hungry when, you, when you're dieting. And then you yo-yo diet, and then the weight comes back up. It's very depressing. I don't mean here to be depressed. I'm just telling the biology. I'm just giving you the biology. Anyway. So when people, uh, so, so let's say you oh. put on lots of weight. Uh -huh. How would you lose it? Because you're not a fan. Giles is not a fan of fad diets. In fact, your book you describe as an anti-diet book. So how would you lose weight? <laughs> I I am a, not a fan of fad diets in the sense where I'm not a fan of a diet which is extreme or which is based on pseudoscience. Um, there is no other way of losing weight aside from eating less and moving more. So, so, so although I'm saying it's complex, at the end of the day, you have to do that. You have to consider diets as a strategy to get you to eat less and move more, eat less in particular, okay? But the, pro the thing is, for each of us, that strategy is going to be very different. For example, I went on a vegan diet, for trust me, I'm a doctor, which is one of the, the, the programs I present. For 29 days, I wasn't counting, but 29 days, and I lost four kilos times 2.2. I lost Whoa. 10 or 11 pounds in 29 days. Vegan diet, well, plant-based actually. I, I ate, um, you know, I didn't eat crisps and stuff. Now, I ate as much as I wanted, but because vegan food is just bulkier than meats, so you've got to eat a lot of lentils, to equal a steak. That's just, that's just the way it is. And there's only so much time in a day you can eat. 
I ended up eating as much as I could, but yet losing weight because I was absorbing fewer calories. So for me, a vegan diet probably was an effective way to lose weight. And in fact, now I'm vegan partial flexitarian, I think that's what they call it, because then I can keep that. I was, after losing four kilos, you want to keep it off, or at least in my head I did. And, and so for me, it's fine. But for some other people, this would be awful. This would be terrible. I've just finished another diet, once again for trust my doctor, intermittent fasting, okay? I hated it. Now, not because there's zillions of people out there who do it and love it, and it works for them. For me, I did lose a little bit more weight, but nowhere close to the amount of weight I lost while being, while being vegan. So in that situation, it's not that being vegan was being better than intermittent fasting or vice versa. It's, it suited me better to be on a vegan diet than to intermittently fast. And so someone has got to understand, people who want to lose weight have got to understand, well, what is my lifestyle like? What, what are my weaknesses? Um, and therefore, what strategy can I put in place in order to help me lose weight better? That's fascinating. So hold on, let me just wipe my brow. Are you going to try any other extreme diets or... Extreme diets? Um, For the sake what? of journalism, TV. Well, someone did, they did discuss, although I don't think they got the clearance, to put me on an insect diet for a couple of weeks. So I know exactly. Um, I don't know. But I'm enjoy. I'm actually. Um, it's almost like weight loss on the BBC. Thank you. But I think it's been interesting because when when, when I studied the things in theory, um, and just underlying the biology, it's mm. fine. It gives you information. It's amazing what you can learn when you do it yourself. It it doesn't inform about everything, but this is where I, I think I've gotten a lot richer. Uh, uh, in terms of my understanding of the various things because I've done it and because I've done it mm. I feel I feel that's the situation so I don't know what else but those are the two I've done so far where you say the way to lose weight is eat less and move more the way to lose weight how you achieve doing that yeah. is complex yeah what about people who say who are overweight and uh -huh. say it didn't work for me I exercised I hardly ate anything I just didn't lose anything how do you respond to that Okay, is there always going to be a situation where for some people, okay, for a number of different reasons, um, that they just are more efficient, okay, in terms of the amount of calories, you know, so is, in the field we call it nutrient partitioning, which means that for every new calorie you take, how much do you store, how much do you burn, okay, and the amount you burn, how efficient are you with it, how much work can you get done, uh, is that going to differ between you and me, yes it is. Okay, so I think that is not a lie. There are going to be some people who eat exactly, exactly the same amount as you or as me, but will weigh differently. And so I think that's that there's that element and there's going to be a genetic so element they to can, it. They can blame DNA. They can blame their genes. <sighs> blame is such a strong word. I mean, can, do you, I see, I'm a politician. Can, your DNA and your genes will play a role in everything that we do. It just depends on how much versus the environment, okay? But I don't like to use the word blame. Does it influence, does it strongly, strongly influence the way we, we end up being? Yes, of course it does. So yeah, use the word blame if you wish. Okay. Um, we are already 15 minutes through. I'm so sorry. I really wanted to, no, don't apologize. I'm loving all this. Just before we start talking about supplements, I really just want to touch on why you think a liposuction is dumb. Ah, okay. So, um, Liposuction is dumb. Well, okay. Liposuction is dumb for purely cosmetic reasons. So please, just those of you who have had it for other reasons, cosmetic reasons, to give you a good bootay, okay? 
bad. Let me tell you why. So when people gain or lose weight, or when people gain weight, the misconception amongst most people, I would say, is that you have more fat cells. And that's not what happens. What happens is a fat cell is like a balloon. So the more fat you have, the bigger the balloon gets. And the smaller you get when you lose weight, your, your fat cells become smaller. You don't gain fat cells, they become bigger and smaller. It's kind of your muscles. You don't gain muscle cells, they become bigger and smaller. It's just the balloon. Either yeah, it's the balloon effect. Okay. The thing is, however, when you get to a situation, when a balloon gets too full, it pops. That's where the analogy ends. But the, your fat cells can get too full. And when they get too full, the safest place you have to remember to store your fat is in your fat cells. There's your professional fat storing uh, uh, receptacles. Whereas if, you, if, if it's full, it, has to, it will go somewhere else, such as your muscle, such as your liver. That's not what we want. That's not what we want. Okay, so that's the problem. So what happens when, why some people get, why people get ill when they get fat is largely because the fat which is in your fat is no longer only there, it's in other parts of your body. But here is the, the important bit. Everybody, everybody's fat cells can expand to different sizes. So some people, for example, can get very, very big fat cells, whereas other people have fat cells that go eh, and then suddenly there's no safe storing capacity which is why you have skinny people who become type 2 diabetic, even though they say, oh, you're skinny, why are you, why are you ill? They have a, a very small, safe fat-carrying capacity. Whereas why are some people able to get so large that the fire engine has to come along and crane them out of the house? Whereas you or me, if we got to 300 kilos or whatever it is, we would be dead because we would never get that big. So people have differing fat-carrying capacities. Everyone has this kind of Every, limit. That's it, and it's genetically determined. Right. Now, when we do liposuction, it's not as if we stick a billion little tiny straws into your fat and go and suck out the fat. We're removing fat cells. So what we are doing is removing safe fat carrying capacity. So yes, you may have a gorgeous boote, but you have now may look great, but have increased your chances of dying. So yeah, maybe some people would say that's fine, but to me, that's a stupid thing to do. And you've increased your chances of dying because your fat could now spill over because you've reduced your you've reduced your the capacity. reservoir you've reduced Reduce your, you reservoir. you have taken your reservoir and concreted half of it out to make a smaller reservoir so therefore you, you know it, it would just leak everywhere and then you get and leaking out and getting ill by ill you mean diabetes, type 2 diabetes heart, heart disease, disease certain cancers um some people say alzheimer i mean there's a gazillion things depending on your genetics which could which being which carrying too much fat rather than necessarily being obese per se, um, is bad for you. Because so there are going to be, so just looking at someone's weight, while on average you can say this person is more or less likely to be ill, is a poor predictor of whether or not someone is actually going to be ill or not. Because you can't tell what their safe fat carrying capacity is going how, to be. How can you tell what their fat capacity is? That's the $64 million question. Um, oh, that okay. is cut, cutting edge research. So the we could do that test on yes. everybody. Yes, so, so, so the answer is, the most likely answer is going to be, can we do it via genetics? And there is furious work. I mean, I'm, this is not my area of specialty, but it was, um, so this particular concept was, was worked on very, very heavily in the institute, which I work on back in Cambridge. And there are people that are trying to understand every single gene that is involved so that they can get as close to a prediction as possible with regards to safe fat carrying capacity. It's fascinating. Liposuction, bad. Uh -uh. Okay, so let's come on to the second part of the show where we yes, wanted to talk to Giles about his TV investigation. Now you did this, we were looking at the supplements industry mm -hmm. and um, well, well, tell us what you kind of found overall in your conclusion here where you were investigating whether or not we really need 
vitamin pills. Mm. What did you come away thinking? Okay, so I think we came away, so the, 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 the program, we thought about the program in a number of different parts. The first is what was a vitamin, and, um, and, and these are, you know, what we call micronutrients that you have to eat, where you can't make by yourself. So you have to eat them, and without them, you can't, you can't maintain health. Um, and then we ask, well, what happens if you don't have them? Okay, so for example, famously, if you don't have, if you don't eat enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. Mm -hmm. if, if you don't have enough vitamin B, you get beriberi, you know? And so there are a lot of diseases out there which are terrible if you don't have enough. The question, the most interesting question, because at the end of the day, we, we live in a rich country, okay, where scurvy and beriberi are just not endemic on, on road. It, it just isn't. It's more better. And I think that was the question we were trying to ask, which is fair enough, okay? A lot of people do think that. In fact, that's what the supplements industry cashes in on, right? Where most people you speak on the street, including myself, I have to say, okay? Not now, but including myself a few years ago. I said, well, if it's not doing you any harm, then it's a little bit like an insurance policy, right? I mean, if, if fine, I, mean, I might be making expensive we, you are making very expensive we, but if it's an insurance policy, then what's, then, then what's the problem? But then what we begin to find out throughout the program, and you can ask me about more details, is that one class in particular, fat-soluble antioxidants, this is vitamin A and vitamin E in particular, don't, are not just there as an insurance policy. Taking too much of it is actually bad for you. It actually increases your likelihood of dying. And so then that really began to the way it was to, to me, it was shocking, right? Right. The data has been out there, but but it was not like the media never picked up on this, and so I think therein lies the problem. I think what the conclusions were, pretty much, but if you can afford vitamins, you probably don't need them. I think that's the first thing, and secondly, I think fat-soluble antioxidants, you don't have to take. You you shouldn't take any extras. There are exceptions which we might get to, but in effect, some people will always need uh, um, some supplementation. For example, I'm from the tropics. I'm a tropical boy living in a northern rock. I am vitamin D deficient. I should probably be taking some vitamin D supplements. There's a biological reason for that. I think uh, ladies in particular, um, younger ladies, adolescents are probably going to need some kind of iron supplement. They lose iron that time of the month, etc., etc. There's a good reason. And if you're trying to become pregnant, folic acid, and if you're vegan, vitamin B12. Everything else? That's really interesting. Yeah, probably not. You know, I used to take, I used to take quite a few supplements. Right. But I've really scaled back. And, and perhaps it was because I was influenced by your program. But I really had to ask myself, you know, what, have I felt any benefit? And, and I recently had a blood test, checked on my vitamin D. So I'm going to continue my vitamin D because it seems to be a good level in the blood test when I've been taking yes. it. Things like that. Um, but one thing that really interested me from your program uh -huh. was the realization that vitamins are regulated as foods and not drugs. So they don't actually have to prove to be effective. They don't. To go on sale. They don't. This is once again something, I know I should know this. This, I did not know at all till I made the program. So people think I go into making these programs with a whole set of, of presumptions that I'm trying to just find evidence for. And some things are really crazy and maybe I'm doing that. But the vast majority of the time, we're asking, okay, well, look, people want to know. And then, and then we looked at, no. So vitamins are not drugs. So when you have a drug, drug X, paracetamol, okay, for example, I am taking paracetamol because I have a fever or because I have a headache. 
it works and it works because they have done trials they know what the safe dose is we know that you shouldn't take more than you know six of these tablets a day that kind of thing because it, it is it's, so all of these things are there so we know a safe dose we know the harmful dose and we know what we should be taking okay and we know it works vitamins none because vitamins were originally extracted from food it's considered a food which means that if you ask the question well what is a safe dose of vitamin x we don't actually know because no one has actually done the studies mm -hmm. because it's not regulated they're not needed to do the studies but what's interesting and what we found out was now unlike a drug when you buy a drug paracetamol used for fever and for pains okay they can say that because that's what has been found in the test look at the back of any vitamins pack it cannot say this will make you younger smarter have more hair it can't tell you any of that what it can say is iron for example is say are you tired iron contributes to normal levels of hemoglobin okay okay the, the, the oxygen carrying thing a uh, capacity in your in your blood so therefore helps you feel less tired if you don't have enough iron but they don't say that contributes to normal means if you didn't have enough if we top it up it will be fine for you and this is a I call it verbal gymnastics because it is and I and I and I do realize look at the back of every single packet of everything it will say contributes to normal eye development con contributes to normal you know skin there are there are any number of, of I don't want to get libel so I'm not going to mention any companies but there are any number of things which you got the beauty products okay beauty product supplements not beauty products contributes to normal nails cuticles uh, uh, skin complexion all of which is if you don't have normals am normal amounts of it then you're ill and, and your fingernails are falling out your fingernails are not falling out mm -hmm. and, um, and and that's why because they're not regulated as drugs they have to do the marketing in a way which is still legal but to my mind are fooling us are misleading us so naturally the supplements industry uh, had some criticism and they argued, I mean, one brand in particular said that um, the program ignored widespread evidence that a large proportion, I'm summarizing here, a large yeah. pro proportion of UK adults may not be achieving adequate vitamin and mineral levels. But you, you did kind of address that, but do you think that they have a point that, that maybe their supplements are aimed at people that need, that need it? Okay. I think that is when you do take a supplement because there's some people who need supplements okay undoubtedly this is going to be the situation including the supplements that are made by these brands they are not marketing it I'm, I'm sorry they are not marketing it towards the people who need it you look at their advertisement campaign next time you step on a tube or metro or wherever it is in whatever country in the world okay mm. and look at the, the, the board do they put a little old lady with a walking stick saying that this little old lady needs something i can almost guarantee you no they have a gold medal award-winning swimmer they have a footballer they have a supermodel okay and what they're saying is that contributes to normal you you, you know so what they're saying is this doesn't make you look more beautiful or look or, or be a better swimmer so yes that i can see their argument and their argument is true except in their actions they are not marketing it towards the people who actually need it why would you be putting an olympic swimmer there i guess yeah I, I mean those are the supplements that you kind of see on sale in the supermarket where i i've seen more adverts for those than ones that you kind of get via a, 
specialist website recommended by a nutritionist. Yes. So I guess there's a difference. There's there. a, there is a difference being... on who you're marketing it towards. Yeah. Because the main manufacturers that are actually there, I, I, you cannot convince me that they're trying to, they're targeting the um, refugee camps. Are they? Really? Shut up. No, they're not. They're, they're, these companies are not targeting. They're targeting the people who live here on the street, right here in uh, Fitzrovia or wherever, wherever we're at. Somewhere, somewhere very nice. Somewhere yeah. very nice, yeah. Uh, so some of the questions I had from you guys watching. Uh, Sarah had asked, should kids be taking supplements? Okay, it depends on which kid, what kid. I think there is some evidence um, for kids needing some iron. I think there probably is. Um, but you can, you should, be, if, if your child is actually having a healthy diet, the chances are very, very slim that he or she is going to need any, 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 any supplements. When in doubt, ask your doctor. Um, and on that note, we're not giving out any medical advice this here. No advice. We're going to just address these with Giles's uh, impartial view and information. Um, Abdella had put a comment down about uh, how we can avoid junk science claims. I guess you've just broken a lot of them down for us, haven't you, on the size of packets? <sighs> It is very difficult, I have, to, I have to say, to avoid junk science claims because the problem is the vast majority of us, myself included, are not experts outside our own sphere of, of expertise. And we all have our own expertise. I am a scientist, but not on everything. And so we do have to rely on other experts. And so the problem is social media has made things very difficult because there's no, it's, it's, um, it's democratized journalism in a good, but also in a bad way where there's no editor so therefore you can say whatever you want um, i do think it's a difficult answer of how you i mean i think you try and look at as, at as many sources as possible and try and build up and from legitimate sources and try and build up your, your your thoughts from there but when in doubt try and ask an expert an actual expert i tend to think if something sounds too good to be true then it probably is that's i think that rule is a very good one i have not yet seen something which is too good to be true that actually ended up being true. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Dave asked about the difference between natural vitamins and synthetic. Oh, that's an, that's an odd thing. So I think, look, a vitamin, a vitamin is, a, uh, is an enzyme in effect, okay? Now, it doesn't actually really matter whether or not you naturally, which would mean extracting it from an orange, say. Okay, so that, that would be a cl classic example. Can I extract vitamin C from an orange? Probably. Or can I, can I make it using a process, using chemical reactions? And you might think, oh, no, 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 I want my vitamin C from the orange, please. Okay, rather than from it. The problem is, depends how pure. If you're drinking orange juice, okay, well, then that's fine. But if you've extracted and made vitamin C and they say it's from an orange, I don't know if this exists, but this is, this is the argument. You still have to go through so many chemical processes to actually get everything else out of there. Uh, uh, whereas, in very many ways, when you're saying, well, if I take a chemical reaction and put it together and get vitamin C, you know, it's almost better. The answer is, it's not going to be better because if you're getting purified vitamin C, it's exactly the same wherever it comes from. They're both heavily processed. By definition, yeah. by its very definition, the only way to not eat non-processed vitamin C, which we should, to be, to, to, to be fair, is to eat an orange or an apple or cabbage. Giles, you've been brilliant. This has been fascinating. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they follow you on social media? So I'm on Twitter at, at Giles Yo. 
just my name. On Instagram, at Giles Yeo, I've, you can Google me and get my institute webpage and my book is Gene Eating uh, and you can get it everywhere. Thank you and Health Hackers, don't forget to go and subscribe on YouTube or iTunes and, and leave a nice review if you're in a good mood. Thanks a lot, see you next time and thank you to the Royal Institution for having us here in London today. Bye bye.